Well, like Stephen said, um, Second Corinthians is a difficult book, and uh, <laughs> this morning is a difficult passage. And so I want to warn you about that from the beginning. Um, what we do may be a little hard to follow. That's okay. I want you to stay with me as best as you can. Um, we're going to be looking at Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, through uh, chapter 2, verse 11. And you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. Uh, this, this, morning, this morning's text deals with a topic um, that... Maybe especially if you're a guest here, you may never have heard preached about before. Um, church discipline. It sounds scary. Kind of is. And the idea for me of preaching on it is unpleasant at best. And that's because it deals with God telling us no. It deals with God dealing with our sin, with my sin. Okay? And so the reason why I'm... That's the reason why I'm, I'm betting you've probably never heard anybody preach about it before. Um, and I sympathize with not wanting to preach about it. But we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to talk about it because it's here in God's Word. It's here in this text. And it's here for a reason. We have to understand it. And we have to know how to deal with it. Um, now, even if you have heard of church discipline preached about before, spoken of in the pulpit. You've probably never heard this text actually dealt with. I looked so hard to find somebody, anybody, anywhere who dealt with this text. I searched the Internet. It's not there. People stop preaching in verse 22 of chapter 1 and start preaching again in verse 12 of chapter 2. Um, the only people who really deal with this are old dead people. And the only people I could find that were really helpful were Calvin and Hodge, which is different than Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> they wouldn't be very helpful. Okay. Now listen, there are two parts of this morning's text, okay? The first part is really the second part of an argument that the Apostle Paul is making. Okay? He's responding to something. This is part two of a response. And that's what part one of his argument is what Joseph preached about the last time he preached. Okay. Now, the second part is what's dealing with church discipline. Um, it's actually dealing with the restoration of someone who has previously been placed under formal church discipline. But in order to understand the restoration, we have to understand the discipline. Which means there's a whole lot of work to do this morning. So we're going to deal with those two parts of the text independently, okay, the first and then the second, and then we're going to see how they're connected, and that's going to lead us into our application of the text this morning. All right, so the first thing that we have to do is pick up in the middle of an argument, all right? So let me explain what's going on. In Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he wrote that he intended to come and visit them. And then he didn't come. Okay? The Corinthian church was offended, and some accused him of being wishy-washy, of vacillating. 
And so Paul gives two responses. The first response, it's not an explanation and it's not an argument, it's a rebuke. It's, wait a minute, why are you accusing me of vacillating? What do you take me for? You should have thought better than me. I am a minister of the gospel. I'm a minister of God's word, the God who is true. You should have thought better of me. That's response number one. That's what Joseph dealt with last month. Response number two is different. And it's not a rebuke and it's not an argument. It's an explanation. Okay, and it should be. It's up on the screen behind you. We'll read verse 23 of chapter 1 through verse 4 of chapter 2, and we'll stop there, and then we'll deal with this section of the text. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but our work is with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But I had determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, or I wrote as I did, or I wrote in this way, would be a a good way to understand that. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Okay, so first is the rebuke. Joseph dealt with that. This is the explanation. What's the explanation? He wants to spare them. What does that mean? Does he think that if he comes... He's going to, like, need to call fire out of heaven to come and consume the Corinthian church? Is that what he's talking about? It's not what he's talking about. Aren't you relieved? But this is one of the reasons this morning's text is difficult to understand. There's a lot of backstory involved, okay? You have to know the history between Paul and the church at Corinth. And you have to be able to read between the lines. So let me try and paint a picture really quickly of what's going on. Like I said before, Paul intended to come to the church at Corinth, okay, um, before he knew of any problems there. He hints at this and mentions it sort of in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16 of this letter. He says it more explicitly in his first letter to them. And then he hears nasty reports about what's going on at at Corinth. Okay? They were bad reports. They were dividing into factions based on their favorite preachers. There was all kinds of sexual immorality rampant in the church. One guy was sleeping with his mom. We'll get to that. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. One pastor describes the church in Corinth at this time as Christians gone wild. And that's really what they are, right? They're loose, they're free, they're proud of themselves, and they're proud of their overflowing love for one another. They're very sure to make no judgments about anyone or anything, and we're going to see that. In other words, they're just like we are. They're just like us. 
we can relate to them. So Paul hears this report, and then he writes them a letter and he rebukes them. That is 1 Corinthians. Okay, that's what we have in our Bibles is 1 Corinthians. He rebuked them because he loves them, he's committed to working with them for their joy, and because he wanted them to have time to correct their errors before he came to them so that his time with them wouldn't be painful but would be a joy to each of them, to both him and to them. That's what's in the verses that we just read. Okay? Here's the problem. He never received the encouragement that he hoped to receive before he came through the region. So he didn't come. That's what's going on. But that's not all that's going on in these verses. There's a subtext to these verses that we need to draw out that's going to help us later. I told you that he wasn't making an argument from the text about why he didn't come to Corinth. That's true, but he is making an argument in this text. He's responding to another accusation. Now, remember the first accusation. The first accusation was, Paul, you're wishy-washy. You're vacillating. The second accusation is, Paul, you're harsh. You're rough. You're mean. And those two accusations go together hand in hand to say, Paul, you're a tyrant. You're a tyrant. You write us a letter ripping us to shreds, demanding obedience from us. You break your promises. And then you won't even show your face. All you're about is knocking us down, beating us up, and looking down on us from afar. You're a tyrant. That's what he's dealing with, okay? Where do I get that? Well, listen to what he's doing. He's defending himself, okay? Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He's defending himself. He's defending himself against the accusation that he's a complete tyrant. He says, no, no, I'm not a vacillator and I'm not a tyrant. What I am is a father. I love you. I rebuke you because I love you. I want to spare you pain and and sorrow. I didn't even want to come to you because I was afraid I was going to find you to be disobedient. And I didn't want to have to cause you any more sorrow. Okay? And he tells them as much in his first letter to them. That reality is laced all throughout his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, He tells them he doesn't want to have to come to them with a rod. He's been rebuking them and rebuking them and rebuking them. He calls them infants and children, and he does so pejoratively. And then he mocks them, and he uses sarcasm. And then he comes back with tenderness, and immediately after having mocked them, says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He's telling them, he's writing to them as a, far, as a father. He's being hard on them because he loves them. He wants to come to them, but he doesn't want to come to them with a rod in his hand. But he will, but he doesn't want to, and he doesn't. That's why he's writing to them. He wants to come and find obedient children. He doesn't want to come and have to discipline them. Okay. That's first section of this morning's text. So package it, put it in a box, and, and sit it over here for now. And we're going to get back to it, okay? Now we're going to turn to the second part. And that means that we have to deal with the issue of church discipline. Church discipline is not a term that you find in Scripture. What it's simply referring to is submission to God's correction, to God's correction, by means of the church, through the vehicle of the church. And when the Bible speaks of this discipline, in the vast majority of cases, it's not referring to formal discipline. It's referring to casual discipline, if I can call it that. It is church discipline to sit under the preaching of the word every Sunday morning and to be corrected and rebuked and exhorted in your doctrine and in your practice. It's a kind of church discipline when your brother comes to you and points out a sin of yours. In other words, church discipline is something that's organic. But... There is a formal kind of church discipline that the Bible teaches us about and commands us to make use of when necessary, and that's what we need to talk about this morning. Now, the classic passage on church discipline is Matthew chapter 18, right? If you know anything about church discipline, that's probably the first place that you go to um, when you think about it. In the passage, Jesus instructs, us to approach a brother when he sins against us and to admonish him privately, right? When your brother sins against you, go to him in private and admonish him, okay? Then he instructs us to take a witness or two with us if our brother refuses to hear us. So our brother sins against us, against me. I go to him privately. He refuses to receive my correction then I go and get a couple other people as witnesses and we go to him. He refuses to listen to us. And then Jesus says that we're to bring it before the church. And if he refuses to repent before the church, Jesus commands us to treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector, a common pagan. Certainly not as our Christian brother. That's called excommunication. And generally speaking, that's the process of church discipline. But it's not the only process of church discipline. And we're going to see that this morning. The reason it's not the only process is because the Bible makes a clear distinction between private sins and public sins. Matthew 18 is dealing with private sins. If your brother sins against you, go to him privately. Okay. 
But in reference to public sins, the Bible is, has something completely different to say. The Bible teaches that public sins are, be, are to be corrected publicly. So when Paul writes to Timothy about correcting people who are publicly teaching false doctrines, he says, rebuke them in the presence of everyone. Don't hesitate. Don't go to them privately. Rebuke them publicly in the presence of everyone. And that's exactly what Paul did when Peter was sinning publicly, refusing to sit with, with Gentiles, right? Paul looks over, sees Peter refusing to sit with Gentiles, and he stands up and rebukes Peter publicly. Public sins are to be dealt with publicly. If someone has sinned in a public way, you, you are not to take them aside and speak to them privately before you take the next step. You cut right to the chase. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay. The process of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline. The purpose of church discipline is big. It's huge. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. And it's bigger than how we feel about it. The Bible teaches us three main purposes for discipline in the church. And it's most concerned with the glory of God. If someone is living in unrepentant sin and calling themselves a Christian, they're bringing dishonor on the name of Jesus. So the first purpose of church discipline is to make sure the name of Christ is honored. That he won't be slandered because of the conduct of unrepentant sinners who call themselves Christians. The second purpose is to protect the purity of God's people. The Bible constantly speaks of a little leaven leavening the whole lump of dough. That means is that by the example of, what, of one unrepentant sinner, many may be led astray thinking that their sins are validated. Finally, the purpose of discipline is the repentance and restoration of the offender. It's not to, to punish him. It is, but it's not. It's to bring him to repentance. And we're going to see that purpose explicitly mentioned here in a second. So with those things in mind, with that foundation laid, with that backdrop, let's turn back to the issue of the guy who was sleeping with his mom. And let's see how it was dealt with in Scripture. Because it's going to teach us. And we have to understand it if we're going to get anywhere with this morning's text, okay? So, let me release the pressure valve and ease the tension and tell you that whatever happens, whatever we're going to talk about works. We see it in the passage in 2 Corinthians. It works. The guy repents. Okay? But before we get... Well, the man repents, and that's inevitably going to lead us to talk about his restoration. But before, before we get there, we're going to look at how he was dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul's instruction to the church at Corinth after having heard about this guy. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. 
For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's intense, right? It's intense. It's rough. It sounds harsh, because it is harsh. Cut him off. Have nothing more to do with this man. I've not met him. I don't know who he is. I've heard about him. I've heard enough. I command you in the name of Jesus to cast this man out from among you. It's intense. It's intense because the danger is is intense. Christ's name is vulnerable to open slander because the sin is public and it's heinous. It's incest. Paul says, it's something pagans cringe at. You're Christians. You represent Jesus Christ. What are you doing? And the whole church is already being sexually licentious. Much less this man. Right? So it's already infected the whole church. And this man is being affirmed in his sin instead of being called to repentance. It's public sin. It's huge. It's more than your average fault. He jumps in and says enough. That's enough. Deliver this man over to Satan. He doesn't even leave them options. This is what you're to do. So what do they do? They threw the man out. They repented, kind of, and obeyed. And their repentance went so far that they ended up on the other side of the ditch, right? Now Paul's writing to them and saying, guys, the man's repented. Forgive him. Welcome him back. It's okay. That was the point. (laughs) All right. So let's go back and uh, back to 2 Corinthians and pick back up in verse 5. I know I'm jumping around a lot. Stay with me. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 5. If any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree... In order not to say too much or not to put it too severely to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Okay, so what's happened? 
they've obeyed so well that they won't take the guy back in. They've become harsh disciplinarians. They've become tyrants. Right? And so Paul has to write to them while defending himself and saying, guys, I'm not a tyrant. And he has to step in and say, guys, you're being tyrants. Stop it. He's repented. Welcome him in. Restore him. Or you'll be taken advantage of by Satan because he knows the human heart. And he knows that he can manipulate you with pendulum swings. So the church is coming out of license. Satan knows how to turn a church and people coming out of license into Pharisees. And he knows how to use that to, in this case, lead this man into sorrow and despair instead of to the cross of Christ, instead of to the grace of God. And on the flip side of that, Satan knows how to turn Pharisees into licentious people who exercise no discipline. It's dangerous. These are the schemes of the devil. And so he's warning them and he's saying no. Now, what's the deal with the church at Corinth? Do you think it's a coincidence that Paul moves from dealing with the accusation of him being a tyrant into their own tyranny of sorts? Is Paul a fool? No, he's not a fool. He's, on the one hand, demonstrating his own tenderness, his own true fatherly discipline, discipline that's meted with love. Okay, And he's demonstrating that they have no understanding of loving fatherly discipline. You know the proverb, a thief thinks everybody steals. They think Paul's a tyrant because they're tyrants. Because they can't conceive of doing what Paul commanded them to do in love. They can't conceive of dealing this, with this person without being a harsh, overbearing tyrant. And so that's what they're projecting onto Paul when he writes to correct them and to rebuke them. They can't conceive of Paul writing them a letter full of rebukes because he loves them because they can't conceive of love and discipline being united. They don't understand God's fatherly love and care. And listen... You and I are just the same way. We can't conceive of church discipline as a good thing because by and large we're tyrants. We think of church discipline as tyrannical because we're bad fathers. We say that we're not going to discipline our children and be overbearing with them and so we shut our ears and it's la 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 la. I'm not going to discipline la la la. Okay, you're getting annoying. Whack! <laughs> right? Isn't that the way we are? My oldest child's about one years old. That's the way I am. He's one. I'm bigger than you. 
You're little and you're annoying. Shut up. (laughs) I'll tolerate you for so long. Then whack. Right? And so when we think about church discipline, what do we do? We project ourselves onto the church, onto God, onto our elders. That's not how God is with us. It's not how the church should be. That's not how our elders are. And that's not how we should be as parents. True discipline is something entirely different. It's altogether other. Okay. So how do we apply this to ourselves? First thing we need to do is to learn to love discipline, God's discipline. We need to learn God's fatherly care for us and his discipline of us. And we need to love it because he's calling us away from destruction. And he's disciplining us for our joy in him. We have to select elders over us who are good fathers. Isn't that the point of select elders over you who manage their households well, who have obedient children, who are good fathers, who know how to discipline their family? Why? Because we're going to place them over us. Because the church is the household of faith. We're going to say to them, you be our father and you discipline us. We've seen that you're a good father. You understand God. You have good children who obey you and honor you and love God. Be a father to us. We select good elders who will discipline us well as good fathers. We have to honor and love our elders when they do exercise church discipline. It's tough to do. It's hard to be a father. It's hard to be a good father. Especially in this context. It's, I don't know if it's easier or not. Maybe it's easier to be a, a father in the privacy of your home. I don't think it is. But it's hard to be a father. So we have to honor and love our elders when they exercise discipline and we have to uphold their discipline not undermine it not think that we know better we have to uphold it we have to trust them and when necessary we have to defend them and finally we have to believe God God commands us to this and it works it works right here man repents it's right there in the scripture You read it, right? Doesn't always work. Doesn't always work. Two general responses to discipline. One is repentance and the other is slander. And even then, the the slanderer is not beyond God's reach. But we have to expect it to work. It's the point, it's the purpose, it's why God gave it to us. 
expect it to work and pray that God would use it. It doesn't mean that it will always work, but it does mean we should be hopeful. Let's pray.